So this evening, as we have a night of study, you all know that our Sunday nights, sometimes those are nights of worship, sometimes they are nights of rest, other times nights of answering questions, um, also nights of worldview. We have all sorts of different nights that we get into here. And when it comes to a night of study, many times we go much deeper into the specifics, uh, word by word, phrase by phrase, line by line, precept by precept. And I want to actually give a caution tonight. I, I was standing off on the side and the thought came to mind and I just, I wanna share it with you. Um, it can be dangerous in a believer's walk with God if they make their focus to love the study of the Word of God. Listen to where I'm going on this. Years ago, I had an older pastor say, Paul, don't teach people to love the Word of God. Teach them to love the God of the Word, and they will inevitably love the Word of God. Otherwise, we can get so focused on, hey, I just learned something, that we walk away missing the fact that it's all pointing back to God himself. So we are talking about unity within the body of Christ and the prominent position that that holds within New Testament teaching. And last week we identified the first three of six truths that should unite believers together. Now these are not the only six truths, but it's definitely a list to get us started on the right path as well as to have other information for future discussion. But more than this just being good Bible information, it's actually unbelievably practical and beneficial. When believers begin to assimilate these truths in their life, it provides an opportunity to help believers build genuine community within the local church, to understand differences, key differences in denominations, to develop a spirit of cooperation between the churches. How much partnership can we have? Who can we have it with? How, how deep can that partnership go? It also helps believers protect friends and family members from cults and schisms and other heretical groups. Also helps develop a better understanding of what it looks like for us to live as disciples of Christ. And in the past two weeks, I have given one big truth that we've just been breaking this one big truth down. Jesus removed what kept us divided so that we could be united in what keeps us together. That's been the big truth, and we've just taken our time working our way through it. So we are going to reread the same text that we've read in the past two weeks. We're going to read it again for a third night. We're going to have a word of prayer, and I'm going to do about a three-minute recap, and then we will finish out this section from there. So if you would, look with me in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter number 2, Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask tonight that your spirit guide us in the truth again. We ask that we would be able to understand the truths that are being outlined within this text, that your word would come alive. We ask, God, that more than just information that fills our minds, it would be beneficial and it would help us understand more of who you are and have a deeper love for you. We ask that you would have your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus removed what kept us divided so that we could be united in what keeps us together. So exactly what did Jesus remove? Jesus removed the dividing barrier. We found that in verse number 14. And he also removed the sin barrier. We found that in verse number 16. So then the second half of that statement is now important. What actually keeps us together? And last week we gave the first three of six truths that should unite believers together. Here's what we found. We have the same spirit found in verse 14. Just as there is a bond between siblings who have the same parents and players who have the same coach and also fans who cheer for the same team, there is a bond, a special bond of unity between every believer because we have the same Savior. We also found that we have the same identity. This is in verse 15. Jesus made Jews and Gentiles into one new man. And if you'll remember, Paul chose a word for new that does not talk about something being new as in recently completed, but it refers to new as in difference of quality and kind. In other words, Jesus brought Jews and Gentiles into something completely new, never before seen, never before experienced, never before created. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, the New Living Translation shares it like this. What this means is that those who become Christians become new persons. They are not the same anymore. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. God is not trying to clean up, polish up, and patch up who we once were. According to scripture, he says the old life is gone. A new life has begun. Here's the third part of that. We are part of the same body. This was in verse 16. In verse 16, the church is called a body, speaking of a physical human body. This physical body is made up of many different parts, eyes, ears, nose, muscles, skeletal structure, organs, all of those pieces. But all of those pieces do not have the same function. They are specifically designed to accomplish a different task. So if the church is to function properly, we have to remember that while we are many parts, we do not all have the same function. That means we don't have to become carbon copies of each other. We don't have to all look the same. We, we have differing gifts. We need to be exactly who God made us to be. And as we submit our diversity to Christ, who is the head, he connects us together in the body as he sees fit. So now we get a chance to look at the next three teachings that unite us together. We've already seen we have the same Savior, we have the same identity, and we're part of the same body. So what's the other pieces that unite us? We share a common message. This is found in verse 17. It says, and he, speaking of Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. 
Now, verse 17 actually builds on information that was previously shared over in verses 11 through 13. When the apostle Paul addressed Gentiles or non-Jewish people, he described five ways in which they were spiritually disadvantaged prior to the cross. Those are all found right in that text. It says that Gentiles were separate from Christ, who is the Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, had no hope and without God in this world. Now that's a really grim outlook. Praise God for what he says in verse number 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Far off describes Gentiles' spiritual position prior to the cross. That same terminology now appears in verse number 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Gentiles, far away, Jews, near, but listen, both equally lost and in need of Christ. This is so important. One of the greatest examples of this is found in the story of the prodigal son. If you remember, it's a story of two sons and a dad. You've got one brother who went to the far country, notice the terminology, went to the far country, and the other one stayed close to home, he was near. You have one brother who lived recklessly, the other one lived responsibly. You have one brother who seemed to do everything wrong, and you've got another brother who seemed to do everything right. And yet you get to the end of that story and we find that the good brother is just as lost as the prodigal son. One might have been far away, the other was near, but both needed to be reconciled to their father. Jesus' message is very clear. It doesn't matter if you were far away in the sense that you never went to church growing up, you didn't know anybody who went to church growing up, you never had another Christian in your family, you're the first one in a whole line, a whole legacy, you're the first one. It doesn't matter if that's your story or whether or not you were born in the church nursery and you were a part of every program and you learned every verse in Awana and you got all the awards for it. It doesn't matter if you've sinned a lot or if you've sinned a little. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you grew up on, it doesn't matter if you were far away or whether or not you were near, everyone needs to be reconciled to the Heavenly Father. The word preached in verse number 17 means proclaim the good news. It, it could literally be translated as, and he came to proclaim the good news, the gospel of peace. Now, several months ago, I did six messages that were in the previous verses describing the redemptive story of God. And in that section of verses, we saw the, the gospel, the good news is not just the good news that saves, it is the good news that sanctifies. And sanctifies, it means to continually be transformed into the character and the image of Christ. Now, after those six messages, we had five guiding statements that helped us understand the gospel of peace. These are the statements. If you were to go back in your notes, these were our main truths in those different messages. First, we found humanity is separated from God by sin and incapable of reconciling the relationship. Then we found that God loved us while we were sinners and made reconciliation possible through Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Then we found at salvation, we are united in Christ and our position is permanently changed according to God's great and gracious purposes. Then we found salvation is God's gift of grace that is received through faith in Christ. And finally, the fifth of those truths is that as we abide in Christ, God accomplishes his good works in and through us. Those five statements help define the gospel of peace. So when you have those statements, you can now drop them in, drop them into verse 17. The good news that was proclaimed to those who were far away and to those who were near. It's the gospel of peace. Now the reason I bring that up is because God does not have plan one for some people, plan two for other people, and plan three for the people who couldn't figure out plans one or two. He's got one plan. He's got one message. It's the gospel of peace. Now, if there is ever a place to find out the differences in denominations or the differences in churches or the differences with people, we're going to call them spiritualist. Because I don't know if you've ever run into these or not, but they'll say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Well, you know, that could, that could mean any number of different things. But if you want to find out the differences between people and if there's core core opportunity for fellowship and cooperation, ask this question. How is a person reconciled to God? Ask them that question. I guarantee you, you're going to begin to find a number of different answers. If somebody says a person is reconciled to God by doing good things and helping others, let alarm bells go off in your mind. Nothing wrong with doing good things. Nothing wrong with living a good life. But those things do not constitute the gospel of peace that's been preached by Jesus. If somebody says a person is reconciled to God by faith in Jesus plus keeping the law. Faith in Jesus plus obeying the Ten Commandments. Faith in Jesus plus doing some other type of good work. Let alarm bells go off in your mind because... All of that is not the gospel of peace. The moment you add anything to the sanctifying, finished, atoning work of Jesus Christ, it is no longer the gospel message. If somebody says a person is reconciled to God by obeying the golden rule, nothing wrong with the golden rule, the, the idea of doing to others as you would have them do unto you. If they say that, let alarm bells go off because that is not the gospel of peace. Good works will flow out of a transformed life, but good works do not transform the life. There can be many variations in which somebody can share the gospel with you. There's not just one way. There is one way to Jesus, but you can use any number of different phrases. You can use an acronym. You, you can open up the Bible and just say, here's the gospel and read it to somebody. But somewhere in the conversation, you need to hear them say, for a person to be reconciled to God, it's only possible through Jesus. Jesus did what we could not do. None of us could reconcile ourselves to God. Jesus died on the cross to pay our sin debt. He rose from the dead three days later, and he offers eternal life to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in Christ. Somewhere along the way, we need to hear the essence of the gospel. So what's the next truth that unites us? 
We have access to the Father in the same spirit. This is found in verse 18. Now, this is an interesting concept because remember the the conversation is Jews and Gentiles coming into one new man and he describes the fact that we have access to the Father through the same spirit. So think of it like this. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people had acceptance by God through the sacrifices, but they did not have access to God through the Spirit. This is different. A couple of weeks ago, we walked through the the temple structure, and in that conversation, we talked about the fact that the presence of God, according to Scripture, resided above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was found in the Holy of Holies, and access to the Holy of Holies was one of the most restricted places you could ever be. It was only allowed that one person, the high priest, could go in one time a year for a very short period of time under the briefest of, 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 of time and circumstances. It was a very strict requirement around that. Prior to the cross, individual access to God was not available in the same way it is to us today. But now look at what it says in verse 18. For through him, Jesus, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Now there are two cultural pictures that are being presented in this statement. First, in ancient times, when a court official introduced people to the king, they were said to give access to the king. In this area, it is through Jesus that we have been given access to the Father. Jesus said it himself, John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A second part of imagery here is that of a shepherding imagery. Uh, In John chapter 10, Jesus spoke of himself as the good shepherd, and he also talked about the fact that he was the door of the sheepfold. Well, just as sheep are dependent upon the shepherd for protection and provision and healing and help and guidance, so believers are dependent upon Christ. He is our shepherd, we are his sheep. But also Jesus described himself as the door of the sheepfold. So as a shepherd would bring in their sheep at night, they might bring them into a pen if they were close at home, or they might erect their own type of pen out of rocks and sticks and mud and other types of things. After the sheep were inside, they would count the sheep, then they would take oil and they would rub it on the different, the different sores, the different scrapes, because the sheep were always cutting themselves on rocks and briars. And then after that was over with, the shepherd would lay himself at the entrance of the pen. And in so doing, the shepherd himself became the door. Both pictures represent access to the Father. The access into God's presence as king only comes through Jesus. The only access we have into God's flock to be one of his sheep is again through Jesus. It is through him that we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Now the second part of that statement is also really important. 
Uh, you all remember I encourage people to highlight every time in the book of Ephesians that it says in Christ, in him, in the beloved. Because that idea of in Christ is one of Paul's favorite sayings to describe a believer's position and possessions in Christ. But here's another one of his favorite sayings, in the spirit. When he uses the phrase in the spirit, he's not talking about position and possessions, he's now talking about power. The Christian life is not lived by our ability, it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to hold off until we get into Ephesians 4 before we really get into a study of the Holy Spirit, but I just want you to get a couple of thoughts about the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit and think about these in terms of unity within the body of Christ. According to Scripture, the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is one where he comforts and reassures believers. He teaches Christ's disciples. He guides us into truth. He fills believers with the love of God. He enables believers to live with one another in love. He brings assurance to believers that we're a child of God. He empowers the believer in righteousness. He equips God's people. He convicts of sin. He intercedes for us. He produces life change. Now, why would I bring that up? Because if you're talking about unity, what would the church look like if people were not guided into truth? If they were not filled with God's love? If they were not enabled to love each other? If they were not empowered in righteousness? If they were not equipped to serve one another? And if they were not being spiritually changed day by day into the character of Christ? Where would the church be? All I can say is it would not be united. Those pieces are necessary for our unity within the church. That brings us to our final truth, six truths that should unite believers together. We have the same Father. If you have repented of your sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ, you're a child of God, and we have the same Father. Now, oddly enough, this final unifying truth could be one of the most divisive and disturbing truths for people to accept. Many times we view our heavenly father through the lens of our earthly father. If our earthly father was stable and loving and affectionate, it's not hard for us to see our heavenly father as stable and loving and affectionate. If our earthly father was encouraging and really wanted to take time to be with you, it's not odd for that person to see their heavenly father as encouraging and really wanting to spend time with them. If your earthly father was stern and a strong disciplinarian, there's a really good chance you see your heavenly father through the lens of an authoritative, authoritarian position. But also think about those who had or currently have a bad, difficult relationship with their earthly father. Maybe their earthly father was physically, sexually, or verbally abusive. Maybe their dad never wanted to be around them. 
Maybe their dad always made them feel as though their best was never enough, that they could never earn their dad's love, that they could never earn his approval. Maybe they're in a situation where their dad was never around. Their dad left far before they could remember him or left at a very vital time in their life. So there's people who are gonna come at that final truth from a different position. So when the scripture talks about the fact that God is our father, for some people, it's the greatest statement they've ever heard. And for other people, it brings up nothing but bad thoughts and emotions. It's hard to disconnect the two because every image they have of their earthly father is one that's hard. It's one that's difficult. And now the word saying, God is your heavenly father. Now we understand there are no perfect dads, just as there's no perfect people. We get that. We also understand that we all don't have the same earthly fathers. We all do not have the same past experience within our homes. But based on scripture, we can be united in the fact that we all have the same heavenly father and his character is exactly what we need as a father. For those who are in Christ, God reveals himself as our heavenly father who is everything we need, everything. In fact, scripture is so beautiful. This is one of the greatest ways that you can encourage people who are coming out of a difficult background and they're, they're wrestling with this. For example, for the person who grew up without a dad, Psalm 68 says, God is a father to the fatherless. If your dad was unapproachable or maybe distant, Ephesians 2 tells us that we have unlimited access to our heavenly father. Because of what Jesus has done, scripture says you can boldly approach the throne of grace. Have you spent your life trying to earn your earthly dad's approval or his love? Scripture tells us that our heavenly father loves us unconditionally and we are fully accepted because of Christ. Did your dad walk out on you and on your family at an early age? Our heavenly father promised, according to Hebrews 13, not to leave or forsake us. He is everything we need. He is our provider, Matthew 6. He is our protector, Psalm 91. He is holy, Revelation 15. He is righteous, Daniel chapter 9. He shows love and compassion, Psalm 103. He disciplines and directs his children, Proverbs chapter 3. He doesn't play favorites, Romans 2. He brings us into his family, Ephesians 1. He makes us heirs and joint heirs with Christ, Romans chapter 8. And that is just a small portion of what our Heavenly Father does for every one of his children. When you understand the word, it doesn't matter what your background was. You have a great future with your Heavenly Father. He loves in a way that we could never imagine. If you're a Christian, we have the same Heavenly Father, the same one who is caring for you is the same one caring for me. The same one who is caring for us is the same heavenly father who is caring for his children in other countries and other circumstances and in other areas around the world. 
There is one heavenly father, and he knows how to take care of his children. Those six teachings can begin to bring unity together in the body of Christ. It's not the only six, but that's a good list of six to start with. Think about those six and combine it with other truths that you find in Scripture. As we finish, I'm going to draw your attention to something as a resource that that I don't do a whole lot of promoting books up here. Uh, And by the way, I I don't know these authors. I, I don't make a bit of commission off of recommending this to anyone. But I think that this is an important piece for people to understand. When people ask the questions about what keeps Christians divided, almost always the conversation of denominations is going to pop up. Almost always. Like, why are there so many denominations? Why are there so many different ideas that are out there? And it's important for people to understand that the primary differences in denominations comes back to beliefs and practices. And let's be honest, our practices flow out of our beliefs. So if you want to understand where there are differences, you have to see what are the beliefs that are there. So I want to draw your attention. This might be a great resource for people. It's called Handbook of Denominations in the United States. This is the 11th edition. Apparently, there's been a lot of updates that go along the way. Now, somebody might say, why in the world would you need an entire book for this? Well, let me give you an idea. Did you all know that there's over 200 Baptist denominations alone? Baptist. So, I mean, when you show up at one Baptist church and they're hanging from the chandeliers and you show up at another one and they're calm and sedate and you're like, hold on just a moment. The the sign out front said Baptist. There's a reason for that. So this is going to be a resource that helps people understand different denominations, their basic beliefs, their core ideas. Now also understand, this is going to share about denominations as well in Islam. It'll share about different denominational breakdowns or group breakdowns in Judaism, even in some other different religious groups that are out there. This is a resource when you're talking to that friend of yours and they're like, hey, I showed up at so-and-so Pentecostal Methodist United Church of Christ in God uh, who meets on the seventh day of whatever. And it's all of a sudden you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like there's too many names and titles coming at me. You just go ahead and pull out your handbook of denominations. (laughs) And you're like, all right, let me see where we're at on this one. And you just kind of begin to find out. But this is a good objective type of resource to help people understand the differences in those key denominations. So handbook of denominations in the United States. Let's bring it all back together. Jesus removed what kept us divided so that we could be united in what keeps us together. These six teachings will help us understand who we can build partnership with and the depth of those partnerships. These six teachings can be those that if you write them down and you hold on to those, they can be protection for you as well as for those that you love. These six teachings, when combined with other beliefs from the Word of God, help you better understand the foundation of your faith. Beliefs matter. And these six beliefs 
They matter a lot. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that we would be faithful in our study of Scripture, that we would have deep appreciation for the truths of what you have put in. But Lord, at the end of the day, that these truths would lead us to know you more. God, thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.